and invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, we do have a Red Pew Bible, and I invite everyone, if they could, to follow along if they desire to. Uh, there are also notes in our bulletin if you feel led to use that to your, your help. Uh, Matthew 11, page number 922 in the Red Pew Bible. Someone was telling me before the service that uh, at a previous church they had been a part of that the pastor sometimes wears hip waders. And I said, well, that's a great idea if you're tall. I'd fill up. <laughs> as soon as I tried to dip someone who was a tall person, I'd be like, <laughs> be going under myself. So uh, you need to have an operation rescue. Matthew 11. Page 922 in the Red Bible. Uh, we've been looking at different portraits of Jesus. Uh, we've been going through Matthew uh, over the last few years, but I've done it in sections, and we've taken breaks, and now we're coming back, and we're looking at different portraits of Jesus as Matthew presents Jesus to his readers. And so we're going to pick up at verse 25 and just to verse 30. And look at the third portrait that we have of Jesus. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your glorious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and everyone and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So, Lord, I also stand underneath the word of God this morning, although I may be the one presenting this morning. I also am in great need of this portrait. I, we all at times can be self-deceived or and find ourselves going astray, and find that we become humbled, and, and then we need to find you to be that compassionate Savior. Lord, I thank you that while you have to be just and to take care of justice in this world, you have also devised a way to be compassionate, to give us the opportunity to turn to you. You are uncomparably compassionate. We think that we have the corner on that quality, but in reality, we, we don't have a candle compared to you, the great light. And so, Father, as we look at this text, may we be moved with the beauty of who you are, but also the, the grace that is ours to hear the truths of the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Family portraits uh, are a time-honored tradition in our culture. Um, even if they're not perfect, we tend to like to go get one, especially if we have families. Uh, usually a family portrait, at least one in a family's life is good for a laugh, right? You know, there's kids aren't quite looking the way they ought to. Dad's not looking the way he should. Uh, we've had a few doozies through the year, but you know, there's actually, maybe you've never, there's a, actually a whole website dedicated to awkward family photos. And uh, you, can, you can put yours up there to be voted on by uh, some committee. Uh, but as I say, we've had a few doozies through the years, but uh, some of them are actually more endearing than others, even though they may not be a little awkward. Uh, my favorite photo of our family comes uh, when the boys were very, very little. They were a handful. And uh, I wanted to share this family photo with you, one that particularly I enjoy. At some point, you might notice there's a tongue sticking out. And uh, believe it or not, I sent this photo out with my resume to area to churches to candidate. <laughs> because I wanted family, churches to know that we weren't perfect. That we had uh, parenting, we didn't have parenting all together. And uh, portraits, though, are really a snapshot. They're a snapshot of who we are. And one portrait doesn't really tell the whole story, does it? It tells just a section of our life. Multiple portraits are more helpful. And in the absence of an of a actual video camera following our whole lives, we need multiple portraits to kind of give a right assessment of who we are. And multiple portraits also help us to understand Jesus and who he was. And as we've walked through Matthew 11, it's like we've, we've walked through like a gallery and we've seen, we've gone through one wing, as it were, in a gallery of portraits. We've observed two, and we're looking at the third this morning. And the first two portraits of Jesus that Matthew presents is in response to who Jesus has claimed to be, there's response by the crowd, and Jesus then tells us a little bit more about himself. The first portrait, for our memory's sake, is of Jesus telling people pretty clearly that he was the promised Messiah who was to come. Now, there was some unresponsiveness to Jesus in certain regions in Galilee, and that became the occasion for the second portrait in which Jesus was provoked, rightly, to denounce the cities and to explain that he is the coming judge and he isn't there to be a judge at the moment, but he's going to come back someday and there will be a moment in which he puts on, as it were, the robes of a judge and enacts justice. Now, last Sunday, as we looked at that portrait, I, I stressed how the portrait of a judge is, is not for the brokenhearted. It's not for the contrite. It's not for the afflicted. Jesus, as the coming judge, is for those who are smug, who those who are complacent, those who are comfortable. Because at very root, Jesus is essentially Savior. He is essentially compassionate. And that's exactly what the name Jesus means. It means Jehovah is 
Savior. And this is what comes to us in the third portrait, that Jesus is the compassionate Savior. And Jesus is a compassionate Savior who receives the brokenhearted. And this is what I hope to share with you this morning from this text as we walk through two major sections in this little paragraph. Now, in contrast to the towns uh, that we looked at in verse 20 through 24, there were towns that refused to respond even though they had been granted front row seats to watch one of the, some of the most spectacular miracles. And now Jesus moves towards those who have received or are wanting to come to Jesus and he's now encouraging people to partake in the enjoyment of the benefits of a relationship with Jesus. Now, verse 25, uh, it signals, there's a signal there at the first uh, phrase. It says, at that time, Jesus declared. And that signals a pivot, a change, a movement, in which Jesus then remarkably shifts to spontaneous prayer. He, he opens up and just simply starts thanking his heavenly father, our heavenly father. And as he does so, um, we might actually be instructed as we look at this to realize Jesus might have been discouraged by the lack of reception from those cities, discouraged by their hard-heartedness, but instead he turns his heart to his heavenly father and prays. And I think this is very instructive because we might also experience the hard-heartedness of others around us and be tempted to be discouraged. We ought to be following the model of Christ so that we don't become embittered. Jesus, in this sense, shows us how Instead of becoming a complainer, we become like a thanker. We thank our Heavenly Father for what He's doing in the world that we don't immediately see. And so I think there's something to be gained here for us that we not be overwhelmed by those who ought to know better. Truly, there are people around us in our relationships that we think, I would just like to shake them because they know better. Instead, we ought to, yes, we ought to recognize the reality of that, but we have to also turn to our Heavenly Father and take joy in whom God is saving. Because God is determined to save people. And that's where we get our joy and our hope from. We ought to follow what Jesus was showing us by his own spontaneous prayer. Uh, verse 25 to 27, I'm going to break this into two sections. The first section, we have uh, Jesus praying, and I see in this prayer an expression of how God loves to reveal himself to knowingly weak people. God loves to reveal himself to knowingly weak people. Let me read the prayer again, verse 25. It says, I thank you, Lord, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, 
And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, there's verse 27 is kind of like a, a kind of an explainer, but verse 25 and 26 is like the core of the prayer. And Jesus is expressing his gratitude to his Father in his redemptive plan. And then he reflects on how it is that we know the Father in verse 27. And in this, Jesus teaches how God passes over the wise in order to give grace to the humble. This may lead us into some philosophical discussion, I suppose, about free will this morning, and I, I don't, don't want to treat that topic lightly or simply, but I want to be very tactful in the presentation of this text. And I want us to see and observe the words that Jesus uses. He uses the word hiding from in verse 25. There is a hiding from the proud that is in its own way an act of justice. Now, hiding is not my word, it's Jesus' word. You have an argument with Jesus, take it up with him. Now, the word hiding might appear to communicate deceit to us. You know, when we don't want other people to know, we conceal. We're not forthcoming. And that's typically what we mean when we think of the word hide. But our Heavenly Father does not conceal to deceive. He does it in order to bring about judgment. See, proud people don't see not because they can't see. There's like, there is though like a functional handicap that pride brings. That it comes from themselves. And they don't want to see, and that fact keeps them at bay. It kneecaps them. Now, I think it's important for us to realize that we have all been given a capacity to choose our own adventure, so to speak. And when I was a kid, we used to get these little books. And uh, at the end of the page, you could choose to go to page 55, or you could choose to go to page 103, depending on what choice in the storyline you wanted to take. But talk to me. Talk to me about why we choose what we choose. Mankind, I believe, is completely free to choose what they would like to choose. That might sound strange to some of you who know me. But I believe that mankind always chooses what he thinks will lead to his own pleasure. Even those who choose even the darker decisions of like, and I have great sympathy for people who are concerned about their own lives and are thinking about taking their own lives. But even people who are in that moment choose to do so because they believe the alternative of staying alive is far worse. And they choose what they choose because they believe that it is a greater option. Now, I believe they're deceived. I don't believe that that's, in the end, a true, a good choice for them, obviously. But I believe that they're still making their own choices. 
Now, I was talking recently with someone about exercise, and they told me that they would prefer to walk three miles than to do 20 minutes of cardio. And uh, in that discussion, there was a choice. But there was, in that choice, a choosing of that which they believed would bring them greater happiness. And actually, I would agree with them. I'd rather walk three miles and do 20 minutes of cardio. And the reality is, everyone is wise in their own eyes, and we believe that the choices that we're making for ourselves are the best choices. The cities in Galilee all believed that by not following Jesus, they were making the best choice. They were happy with the way things were going. And Jesus' offer of a cross and denial of themselves was seen to make their life not better off. They were living for their family first, their job, their comforts. But what did Jesus offer? See, Jesus offered God over money. He offered kindness over revenge, sacrifice over selfishness, forgiveness over bitterness, honesty over deceit, love over lust, faithfulness over treachery. And many of us could look at that little list that, that Jesus was offering to people and say, you know, it's good to aspire to holiness, or, or, or that's a noble thought that you, you would better off your life. But then we might have this nagging thing in the back of our mind that just says, you know, but who among us is holy? I mean, we've all done wrong. We've all made mistakes. And really, the hard part in what Jesus was asking his listeners to do is to confess their sins to God. And to confess that we really, at root, we really don't love God above everything else. And that is, at root, what causes us to covet and to steal. And it is our pride. It's our pride that causes us not to be objective. It's so easy to cut ourselves slack to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not doing too badly if you consider, you know, Manson or Dahmer or any of these others. I'm doing okay. And that's what pride does. But that actually is not the scariest part about pride because actually pride causes us to be blind to a greater happiness that God offers us. We are satisfied with lesser joys. If we could only see what Jesus offers us, it would truly move us to embrace him, we would repent, we would believe the gospel, but instead, it is hidden from the proud. God doesn't even need to put a cloak over it. We're willfully blind. And here's the catch. God is under no obligation to shake us out of a prideful position. Instead, he, he simply hides the truth about a greater happiness by just letting us go our own way. 
And we might ask ourselves, is God obligated to shake us up? No. See, pride leads us then to even greater sins against God, and it leaves us in the evil consequences of our pride. Pride says, I don't need God. And that in itself is an infinite offense against him. And God says, okay, have it your way. And see, the hiding comes by our own acts of pride. Now, there is a revealing side, which is beautiful, and that's where grace comes in. There's a revealing here in verse 26, and it's Jesus's word. There is a revealing to the humble, to little children, and it's an act of grace, pure grace. And Jesus gives thanks for what is apparently God's gracious desire, his will, to save those who are knowingly weak. Now, Jesus illustrates this awareness of being knowingly weak by referring to children. Now, the word little children there actually refers to infants and babes in arms. And... uh, I think it's really remarkable and perhaps maybe even comical. We often look at babies and we assume a lot of things about them, right? We assume they aren't able to do what adults can do. And Boss Baby, I don't know if you know that film, is wildly hilarious because it's so ironic. It's not, it just doesn't work. And we find it funny because children don't have the resources to make decisions independently of their parents. They don't fight it. A babe in arms doesn't fight. They crave it. They want. They want it. But I know children, having four and five children my own, that as they get older, they kind of want to do some things on their own. They want to kind of go their own way. Now, what Jesus is doing, he's not saying that only children can enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that only those who are chronological children can respond. He's using a metaphor here. He's saying that anyone who will put themselves into a position as children, who stop trying to do life their way, will find entrance and acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it could be that the little people in this world need God more than we adults. You think about it. Think about it. If you, you know, if you have to admit your need for God, and you don't, if you don't admit your need for God, you are actually, what you're doing is claiming to be God. And that can't work because God There is only one God, and God opposes the proud, but he gives great grace, grace upon grace, to the humble. God is not ashamed of those people who feel great sense of shame about themselves. Let's say that again. God is not ashamed of those who feel shame about themselves. Martin Luther said of Jesus' own genealogy 
that Christ is the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. There were four women in Christ's family line who experienced social shame. They were considered unworthy, but not by God. We have the lives of Tamar, of Rahab, of Ruth, of Bathsheba. All four women were non-Jewish. They were sexually immoral, and one was a little bit aggressive. But the men themselves in that line also were not exempt. So there's men and women who God has brought into his own family. Think about all those who gladly received healings from Jesus. They were physically weak people, but they were also culturally weak people. The very first uh, miracle that, that Matthew puts in front of us in his gospel, he puts right in front of us, the first person healed was a leper, and then a Roman, and then a lady. And in Jewish culture, all those were concentric wing, rings away from the temple. Now, that model of exclusion was not in the law. It was actually part of man corrupting the law and keeping people away. But what Jesus does says, says lots. Jesus, has, Jesus is there for those who knowingly they know that they're weak. Now, if you have been humbled by the dis difficulties of your own life, you're actually in the right place to see Jesus. And Jesus is saying that it is of God's good pleasure to welcome you into the kingdom. God gives grace to the humble. Now, knowing the Father is essential to entrance into the kingdom, and that comes through personal initiation by Jesus. Now, let's look at verse 27. I need to just very briefly explain each of the phrases here so you understand clearly what Jesus is saying. Verse uh, 27 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now, that little phrase, that phrase, all things, refers to the matter of revealing now, yes, in a broad sense, Jesus receives everything from his Father. I understand that. But here in this context, Jesus is talking about the work of revealing or of hiding. That is the domain of Jesus. And if Jesus is moved to pity the weak, then they're free to come. The next phrase says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. I'm not going to develop this in any great depth, but I'm just going to say that this expression describes the intertrinitarian knowledge that Jesus has had from all of eternity. It's a bold claim. And the last phrase there, verse 27, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, that is the Father, it refers to Jesus' authority to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. God knowingly reaches out to those who knowingly know that they are weak. God loves to reveal him in this way. 
But sometimes, sometimes God will shake proud people to show them that they're weak. You're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you humble yourself and become like a child. And God will shake proud people to show them that they are weak. God's not obligated to do this. And when he does, it is a tremendous expression of his grace. Paul is a prime example of this. Paul was met with a thunderclap on his way to Damascus. Did anyone hear the thunder last night? I woke up at three, two, three, four, several times. Paul was met with a thunderclap. He instantly became sensitive to his own weakness. He was blinded by the vision from heaven of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And forever after that, he associated himself not with the wise and noble, but he considered himself to be the chiefest of sinners. Some of us know the story of Chuck Colson, the the hatchet man of Richard Nixon. He was hit with a thunderclap of public exposure to his own crimes and his own incarceration. He knew that he was weak. My grandfather was hit with a thunderclap of polio when he was 30 years of age. He thought he was a physically tough guy in his fishing village. All of his strength and all of his pride fled away. And then he responded to Christ. I was hit with a thunderclap at the tender age of a little child. All of these things were initiated by Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, not all weak people are humble. I've met People who ought to be more humble, who don't have resources that were as proud as someone who had billions of dollars. Jesus bids all children to come to him. Now, verse 28 to 30, we have this serious invitation from Jesus in which he invites all weary of their own way to come to him. Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Children don't have stamina. What do they need? They need someone to carry them. And they're not ashamed to ask it, are they? Parents might be weary of carrying their children, but Jesus is never weary of carrying us. And he offers us the joy of leaving our own way and finding our greater happiness in him. Think about how satisfying some of the thrills of life are. You know, I don't know how you are, but if you ever have had the opportunity to do something good for others, doesn't it kind of give you a sense of like, 
ah, just, that was so enjoyable. Or being there for someone, others relying on you, you know, being a service, maybe it's providing safety for someone, um, creating opportunities for people to grow, and maybe you're in a business and you kind of like enjoy that part of business of creating something that benefits others. You know, maybe you paid off a debt for someone. You've treated, and maybe in your own personal life, it finds, feels very satisfying that you have, you know, mastery over your work. Finally, you're actually getting there. You're actually doing well. Maybe you've raised your children, and they're finally out of the house, and hallelujah. You know, these are all kind of satisfying little parts of the world that we're living in. God has made it this way. Why is it that we would think that it wouldn't be even more satisfying to live in a way that honors God? Yes, it is. Sin never brings the satisfaction we think it will. And this is the way God has designed the world. And he invites us to come out of that way of living to embrace him and follow him in his way. Jesus offers us great reward if we come to him, if we're heavy laden with trying to go about it our own way. Now in verse 28, it says that Jesus will give you rest. Rest. Jesus says, come. And that's so simple. That's so simple. You get this rest by coming to him. If we, bel- if we ever are under the impression that, that we are doing something that contributes to our rest or our satisfaction or our salvation, we're in the wrong place. It's not because of something that I have done. It's what he has done. You can be good all you want, but the pride attached to that will make you tired. Now, I'm going to borrow deliberately from Alistair Begg here this morning, Scottish preacher from Truth for Life, fabulous storyteller. I love listening to him. He imagined the absolute shock for all the folks in heaven of seeing that thief on the cross show up. If you ever get a chance to watch this little clip of Alistair, he tells it so wonderful. He talks about how that there's just no reasonable comprehension, no reason why this thief should have just like showed up in heaven. And so as he tells it, there's like all these little angels come around and they kind of inquire, how did you get here? And, and, and they, the, the guy has nothing really to offer as to how he got there other than this, that the man on the middle cross said, I could come. And that's it. Thief on a Roman cross had nothing to hide. He was weak. He had nothing. He only had the opportunity to follow and come. Now, if you've got to come to Jesus, you may have to leave a few things. Yes, you've got to let go of whatever you've been holding on to, of 
whatever you consider to be self-respect, whatever you're hanging on to, you've got to let it go in order that you might be able to come. You know, that thief was naked on the cross. To come to Christ, you have to leave everything behind. Now, Jesus will guide you in his way as he gives rest. Verse 29 and 30, I see this here presented to us. Now, Jesus offers us something that's counterintuitive. He says, take my yoke. Now, that sounds very counterintuitive because in our minds, we might be thinking of a cattle yoke, like two, two, two big bovine strapped side to side pushing. That in its own right is a difficult metaphor. But we actually, I believe Jesus is referring to something more along the lines of carrying pots of water from a well on a shoulder yoke. And that yoke made carrying those heavy buckets of water, those pitchers in his day, this is obviously 18th century, but Jesus was saying, look, I've got a better way for you to haul your water from the well to your home. A better tool to carry what you need. You want the life-giving water that you so desperately desire. I'm going to give you a yoke that you can use that's better. You don't have to slosh it all the way home. Doing it that way, you're a proverbial mess. You're trying to do it your own way. Slosh in the water. Everyone looks around you. They see what's going on. Let me give you a better way. Take my yoke upon you. It's actually light. You might think it's heavy, but it is actually light. And the life that God has designed for us as creatures is better, it's easier, it's lighter if we love God and love our neighbor. That's the design, the yoke that God has provided to us, and it is going to give us the satisfaction that we desire. Now, following Jesus may appear initially as a greater work. But I encourage you, pray for spiritual eyes and humility to see that it is the better way. The portrait of Jesus here is designed to encourage us, those who are brokenhearted, those who are weak, to come. Jesus said in the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is a compassionate Savior who receives the brokenhearted. Will you come? And will you keep following him? He is a compassionate Savior that forgives us when we fall, because we will. We'll forget that we have this yoke on our shoulders and we'll try to start carrying the water again. He's there, and he will bring us all the satisfaction and all the hope that we could ever have. Let's pray.